You are listening to the Some Good Content Podcast, a swipe file of proven content plays shared by some of the most successful content marketers out there doing the work. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. My guest today is the Lauren Pope, content marketing manager over at G2. And do I put like TikToker in there as well now? Because you have, how many followers do you have on TikTok? I have 71,000 followers. 71,000. <laughs> A true content marketer, exploring <laughs> and killing it on all channels. Um, so yeah, Lauren uh, has agreed to come on today, the Some Good Content Podcast, and share some of the biggest plays that have been most effective uh, over at G2 in terms of performance uh, as it relates to their content strategy. But uh, before we get into all that, uh, Lauren, as, as you and I were discussing before, like, what can you tell us in terms of like what kind of role or how big a role does content play just in the overall organizational uh, strategy at G2? Like, what can you share in terms of like what kind of sessions does content drive? How does it contribute, you know, to, to downstream um, metrics at, at G2? Like, what can you share in that regard? Yeah, so I've been working at G2 for coming up on two years. So I started in March 2019. And what we have seen the content strategy grow into has been nothing short of insane. It started as just like a pure organic traffic play to try to build a sort of traffic moat around G2 versus some of our more established competitors. And now it's grown to, you know, we try to pace the 12 million sessions for this year. Um, we're at about 9.7 right now, and we've seen 2% year-over-year growth, even with some intense pruning that you and I are going to get into later. Um, and we try to publish about 140 pieces of content each quarter between our internal writers and our external guest post program. It's a very elaborate strategy. It touches our sales team. It touches our product team. It touches with research and growth. And over the last few years, we've really tried to just become an integral part of how each team reaches out to prospects and not only spreads, you know, the G2 brand, but educating consumers on how they buy and purchase software. Right. And it, you kind of touched on this, but I think what's really impressive about G2 is the sheer volume that you're publishing at, but also everyone that's involved. So I know mm-hmm. you have like a really, you know, you're going to get into that in a bit, but a lot of guest posters and things like that. But what can you tell us in terms of what does the team look like? you know, the internal full-time team at G2, how many people are focused on content? How do the responsibilities break down? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so we have our VP of content, Kevin Isig, and then we have Amy and Holly, who are our senior content managers. Then along with myself, we have three other internal G2 writers in the States, and we've actually recently expanded into Bangalore so that we can touch that global audience. So we've hired, I think, about five writers and content promoters in Bangalore. We're looking to hire a content manager, um, hiring another editor to work on the guest post program. So right now, I'd say we're at about 10 to 12, but we're still looking to expand more um, as our content needs grow. And everyone, uh, the internal writers also focus on sort of pitching their own content for backlinks as well too, right? Is that still how it works? Not anymore, but that was a huge, huge part of our very early content strategy, our very early growth in 2019. And, you know, a lot of people have asked me, how did G2 get so many backlinks? You know, uh, let me pull up that number for you really quick. So in just in 2019, when we started that new content backlink strategy, 
over 8,000 links built in 2019 and over <laughs> 650 of them were built by G2 writers. And so I think that is something that we did at G2 that was very different from what other teams were doing is we had all of our writers pitching their own content, getting in people's inboxes. I think at the height of outreach, I was sending more than 400 emails a month, me personally, <laughs> just. I got a, f- I got a few of them. Yeah. And they, and yeah, they work. That's so, how I think that's how you and I first got connected was was from a backlink email. Yeah, and then that's when you told me about uh, the roundups you guys did. We used to do the data box roundups when the G two content team first got all put together, and we all had to do our own backlink research. I think it was just another girl on our team was like, "Hey, this is like a good opportunity," and we were all just submitting answers to data box. Yeah. But they were all good. We were like, yeah, and they, and they were all good. So it was like, well, yeah, we included all of them. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we had a lot of our writers trained on like how to use Hunter IO and how to find people's email, how to get in their get in their good graces, and really how to craft a cold outreach email that you would respond to as a writer. And doing those, you know, not only just reaching out for backlinks, but then like you write a guest post for another website, that's another opportunity to get backlinks. So just educating our writers on the different ways that you can build right. relationships with other brands. Right. So we, we've sort of jumped into your first play here. Uh, like I said yep. earlier, Lauren shared three, the first being their uh, early backlinking strategy. Um, so we'll, we'll just continue on with that because uh, I think it's great. Uh, so I want to know, like, what, why did it work? Because so many, mar- so many orgs, so many marketers are doing the whole, hey, Lauren, you wrote this post on X. I wrote this post on Y. You should link to it. And um, and I know like the response rates, you know, uh, you're, you know, you're not sending 400 emails and getting 350 links. So, right. um, you know, it's, it's like sales ops, right? You're just, you know, trying to uh, have as many at bats as possible, but like, why was the strategy of G2 so effective? I think there are two reasons it was really effective. I think the first one is that we had an internal link building team aside from the writers And I know that that's something that so many companies outsource and they get agencies for and freelancers, but we had an internal team of about five people who their entire job was link building. And so when it was time to educate the writers about how to do this, we already had people who had done all of the grunt work. They had figured out, you know, which companies are not going to link back to us. They had figured out, you know, does this, does an emoji in a head in an email subject line, improve your chances or just get hit to spam. And we made it our business to say like, you're a writer, but you're also a link builder. And so if you're struggling, like we've got a Slack group, let's figure it out. Let's all help each other out. Let's try to figure this out. And I think that was just being empowered as a writer to do that sort of outreach was really crucial. And then having the expertise in house where we didn't have to worry about, you know, are we using our retainer hours? Like, do right. these people really understand the product? Having internal experts to guide that strategy prevented us from making some of those very early mistakes, you know, where you send a canned email to the wrong person or you're not really personalizing it to the level it needs to be. So I think that's the first thing. And then I think another big marker of our success was we didn't just do cold outreach. We also had someone internally whose entire job was managing external guest post relationships. And so our writers, along with like things they wrote for Learn, would write two guest posts a month for external sites. And so it was easy to it was easier to get links that way because you're not just asking for a link; right. you're providing someone else content. So 
between those two strategies, we were really able to not only build our backlink portfolio, but also our relationships with these companies. And that way, you know, when we come out with original research or like they come out with original data, there's sort of this understanding of like, oh, I've worked with them before. They'll definitely be more receptive to this once you get the ground running and you really start getting that traction. It's just easier and easier and easier to ask for those sort of favors from people because you've done them a favor in the past. Right. And you and I have talked about this before, but you know, how, how big a role is it that the person who wrote the article was the one pitching backlinks for their own article? Like how much do you think that ownership, like you are pitching backlinks to an article that you wrote, like how much of that do you think factored into the, the overall success of the whole strategy? It was huge. And I think when you get so many emails in your inbox of people just using the same template that they found on the first page of Google, when you actually have the writer of the piece pitching you and saying, I just spent a week writing this. I just spent a week writing 3000 words on this and I've done my research. And, you know, your piece came up when I was doing my research and you're missing this or that other piece you're linking to instead of my piece, it's old. It's not as good. I just finished this thing. People respect that because there aren't a lot of writers who do their own outreach. And so it's a really easy way to distinguish yourself. And it gives you more credibility because you're not pitching something that someone else wrote. You can say, Hey, I spent the time researching this topic. So when I tell you that this is something good that you need to talk about, I know what I'm talking about because I'm willing to put my reputation on the line for this. I'm, I wrote it, you know, Right. It, it's easier. I think it's because it's more personal. I think people are very um, protective of their writing, or at least I am maybe as a writer. And so if I'm going to put my writing in front of somebody, I want to make sure I'm putting the best impression forward. Right. You know, and when you put that accountability on your writers, the quality of the outreach improves as well. And so like, how did you... How did you time block your your schedule? Like you said, you sent 400 emails a month. So like on top of writing, on top of the other things that you were doing, how did you find the time to do that? Yeah, so I was just very careful about which days a week I decided I was doing outreach. So I sat down and I was like, okay, I've got meetings on these days and I'm most productive writing on these days. So when I was in the height of my personal outreach, I was writing on Monday through Wednesday, and then Thursday was kind of a flex day where it's like, if I needed to finish up some writing, I would do that. But if not, I would just do outreach. And then I would literally just do outreach for hours on Fridays. I would just sit down, pull YouTube up, and just, <laughs> just hours of the spreadsheets and outreach and using Hunter. Eventually, the writers got introduced to like the automation, but we use automation software for our outreach for the outreach team who does it full time because, you know, limited seats. So, right. And so you said, how many links did you say? Uh, you said there was 8,000, but 650 were generated by these efforts, basically. 661 total links between March 2019 and December 2019 were built just by G2 writers doing their own outreach. And like, it's, it's hard to draw a straight line, but like, what kind of impact did that have on the overall numbers? So I think once we started building our backlink portfolio, it was easier for other companies to just backlink to us without us having to ask. Like as we started generating more backlinks on, you know, other SaaS websites, I think, was a big one. I remember after I wrote uh, a, a guest post for HubSpot, I got a bunch of outreach emails sent to me. I think once we started getting G2's name on these other credible websites, not only were other teams asking to partner with us and co-market with us more often, but we were seeing more 
backlinks being built organically and like just looking at the difference between 2019 and 2020. So in 2019, we built a little over 8,000 total links to the Learn Hub. And in 2020, we're at 36,900 <laughs> just to Learn Hub. So it's, and it's an exponential curve. And right. the reason a lot of people don't do it internally is because it's hard and it kind of sucks. I'm not going to lie. Like you really do just have to sit down and send emails. But if you can empower your team to do their own outreach and figure out a strategy for getting your highest value content in front of companies that can really improve your online presence and your brand, you'll see that spike and it, it just builds upon itself. Right. And what was your, like, so you're sending 400 emails a month. How many links are you getting? Or how many responses are you getting first? Like how many people actually responded to that? And then how many links are you getting? Ballpark. So I will say this in the, in the case of the, so the 400 emails a month, I want to be very, very clear. So when I was doing like regular outreach and like when I was just a writer, I was sending closer to like 100 to 150 emails a right. month. There was about three months where part of my role was like specifically for outreach and backlink building. I would say of the 400 I sent, um, 35, maybe 35. Links. So it's a grind. And yeah, it's a grind. It's a grind. It is <laughs> a grind. And I'll be honest, though, if I, if I could get people back in my inbox, I would say 99% of the time I got one link, maybe even a link exchange where we were saying, okay, well, you have this original original research. Let's put that in these like across three pieces of content I'm creating. Then you and like, then maybe you write a guest post for us. So when I did get people back in my inbox, very often it was more than just um, a single link. It was always a continuation onto something else, whether it be multiple links or a guest post or in some cases, co-marketing opportunities. So it's a grind. But if you know how to capture people's attention, you can the link can be the start of a very long relationship with another content team. Right. So really the play is get a response. You know, like the, yeah. the backlink could be a part of it, but almost be secondary to some sort of relationship you're trying to build. Um, but if you can get a response to your point, you are much more likely to not only get a backlink, but maybe get a guest post for G2, um, which mm -hmm. has obviously played a big role too. That Yeah, that, yeah. that's great. I love that play because backlinking doesn't have to be dirty. And I think G2 and like what you, what your team did um, proves that. Um, yeah. But it, it does sound weird to talk this much about backlinking because it feels dirty, but it, you know, for anyone who's, you know, if you've gotten an email from G2, which probably anybody listening is probably a good chance that they did, right? <laughs> like you probably know that the, the approach was, was a solid one. So that one, that one's great. Uh, your second play that you wanted to share was about pivoting the content strategy away from just chasing the highest traffic opportunity. So what does that mean? Yeah. So I think what a lot of content teams do and what we did in early 2019 is like when you're trying to build a brand online from scratch and you're trying to not only do that, but compete with established competitors like G2 has, I'm sure a lot of other SaaS companies out there can relate to coming into a space that already has some legacy competitors. Um, traffic's really important. And so very early on, we were trying to chase high keyword volume, high traffic pieces that kind of related to what G2 did, right. you know, we would say, we found a lot of success in like writing these social media articles. And so they generate a lot of traffic, but the kind of people who are coming to those articles are not the kind of people who are trying to buy the software that we were using. And we ended up finding ourselves in this trap where we had created this, 
we had had a lot of traffic based on these articles, but they, they weren't converting the way we needed to. And we were faced with a pretty tough decision of like, do we just prune these and take the hit now and narrow the focus of our audience? You know, we had focused so much on trying to make learn known to people and very well known that we had gotten the attention of the wrong audience. Not necessarily that they didn't find value in what we were writing, but they weren't the sort of people who were going to become customers of G2. And so um, in, I think, July of this year, we pruned a lot of that shallow content. And what we ended up seeing, of course, is, you know, the initial drop in traffic. But we ended up increasing our time on page and our, uh, what was the, hang on, let me pull that those numbers up for you. Do we were able to increase our time on page and we were able to more closely link our content with the actual categories. And so the third play, we mentioned the share of voice that I was telling you about, but our entire company scales up to the same categories, the same share of voice and trying to be the predominant thought leaders in specific categories that we think are high value for our accounts. And so our content strategy shifted to right content to support that. And what we're seeing is it's more valuable for our sales team. We're able to go much deeper into the content. And to the third point, we're still able to write that content that maybe doesn't have that direct correlation, but we do it through the guest post program. And we let experts in those industries write those. And we focus our writer's time on writing the high value conversion pieces, those big pillar pages right. that attract the right kind of audience. What, yeah, and what did pruning look like? Like what, what was involved in that? So you had a lot of content that was about shallow topics, like you mentioned, like what did pruning look like? Yeah, so it depends. So pruning was either, you know, let's say we had 10 articles, each one a different thing about Instagram. Do we create the ultimate guide for how to use Instagram and just make one really, really great pillar? In some cases we did that. In some cases, we say, okay, we'll have one of our more senior writers create a new pillar in this keyword that we don't have, and we'll redirect all of this stuff here because it's relatable enough. So it was either like a rewrite, a redirect, or just fully pull it off the website. And so it was a case-by-case -case basis. We had um, one person on it the entire time, just very carefully monitoring it, working directly with our on-site SEO team to make sure that any any pruning decisions we were making would not have lasting repercussions for either learn or the dub dub dub, which is what we call the main right. G2 website. And so also like, I know a lot of those topics too, those shallow topics, they, they're they easy for an editorial manager to plan for because you know what you're going to mm -hmm. get. That's like us. Anytime we would blog about SEO, it just, it blows up. Right. Um, right. And when I worked at Litmus, anytime you talked about subject lines, like it would just blow up. So you have mm -hmm. these, almost like these old reliables that you're like, you, you know, you got a traffic number to hit and mm -hmm. you know, is going to work. So when you shift away from that, was there a period of time where people are like, Oh man, like we still have numbers to hit and we don't really have these shallow topics to rely on. Like talk about that for a sec. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons we put it off so long. It's like we had, we kind of created this problem where there is no way out of it other than to just take the hit. And so we got very early leadership buy-in and we explained to them, like, if we get the green light on this, this is what is going to happen. It could take months to recoup that. And thankfully we've seen that we're just at about, you know, we've just about bounced back. We're not quite at the pre-pruning levels, but with that focus effort on writing content that 
keeps people on the page and gets them reading, you know, the next three articles in that series, as opposed to saying like, okay, I figured out how to change my Instagram password. I'm out of here. The quality of the content and that dedication on not slipping back into that has paid off and the traffic shows it. That's great. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's a, a good lesson for for a lot of us because we all have those topics, like I said, those shallow topics that perform well, but mm-hmm. might not contribute uh, that much to you know the downstream metrics. Right. Uh, and I think it's not a bad thing to write those topics if they are somewhere in your sphere, but I would say those shallow topics should not take up more than 5% of anything you're writing about. And I think 5% is like pretty generous. Um, if you're going to do it, don't let it become a crutch because it's very easy to see how high those traffic numbers can go on pieces like that and say, gosh, why aren't we just doing this? You know, it's definitely not worth it. So you got to, you got to watch that one. It's also relative too to the, to the overall cost of your product. Like if you have a lower, you know, ARPU product, you know, writing those shallow topics might get net you some customers, but obviously G2 is on the higher end. So writing a post maybe about, I don't know, like how to get Twitter followers or something might not net you the kind of reader or user that's going to, you know, buy G2. Um, Well, and it's just harder. Like they might, they might, but it is so so much harder. There are so many more hoops they have to jump through, so many more calls to action you need to convince them to click. And it just, the conversion rates are just not worth at least at the scale that G2 is at now. And a lot of, I think, big SaaS companies that are looking to like seriously invest in content marketing as a way to drive revenue. It's just not a gamble that pays off easily. No, right. That's a great one. And like I said, a a good lesson for a lot of us. So the last one, the third one that you shared was creating a company-wide share a voice model that Mm -hmm. aligned all of the teams and their strategies under one metric. So can you walk us through that? Like what is... What is that? And, and like, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, so uh, I'm fully aware that G2 is a unique SaaS model. We're a software review site. So we serve both purchasers of software and software vendors as a third-party review site. And so what we found was a very hard problem to overcome early on was that some of our teams are more supportive of the buyer and some of our teams are more supporting of the seller. and how are we all working up to the same goal when the people we're serving are not the same target persona? And so the share of voice model is how we did that. And we you know, got together as a company and said, what are the categories that are hot on G2? What are the categories that are really close to being like must have categories in their space? And where, where do we want to focus? Where does sales want to focus? their biggest accounts? Where does research want to focus on getting new vendors on the site? Where can content come in and create resources to align that? And so what the share voice model has helped us do is ensure that no matter what strategy a team is using and no matter what metrics they are measuring themselves off of, everyone is scaling up towards the same goal. And so it's It's broken down a lot of our silos. It's made it easier to work cross-functionally, and it's made sure that anything that any of us are doing at G2 scales up to a single metric that we can all follow and say, okay, is this working? You know, where are we falling short? Where do we need to readjust? And I think the timeliness of us shifting that model before COVID was 
crazy. It was very serendipitous because what we saw around March is when everyone went remote, traffic on G2 exploded. And so we had to have a very agile content strategy. People wanted video conferencing software. That was not in our content plan. But because we were scaling to a share of voice model where that target can shift in a very agile way, our content team was able to shift and reprioritize very quickly. And that ended up helping us hit a lot of our goals in that very early time where a lot of teams didn't know if they were going to hit their goals or not. That's interesting uh, because so many teams, so many companies, uh, traffic and organic traffic dipped significantly. Like there seemed to be like a 20% dip across the board Mm -hmm. in organic traffic once COVID hit. But G2, and it makes sense, saw a spike because you had people looking for software to help them adjust to remote. Mm -hmm. And then we have the issue of what happens when everyone's bought their software. That was the other problem. So we see that initial spike and then we start seeing it flatten out. And so the share of voice model, we were able to track it week by week and say, okay, this looks like the timeliness of this category of video conferencing is is not going to rebound. So let's go back to writing about marketing automation. Let's go back to writing about the sales persona. Let's go back to writing about the HR persona. So we were able to write that content when people needed it and then very quickly say, all right, like we've done what you need us to. You don't need us to, you know, do anything else there. So we'll just go back to now. Now we'll give you the content for how you do your day job. Now that you're set up and you're home and you're ready to go, here's what you need again. So a very agile strategy, being able to look at the editorial calendar and say, you know what, this thing isn't the boss of me. We can, we can, change, <laughs> we can change it if we need to. Um, and I think, again, part of that comes in with having leadership that is okay with saying like, okay, this isn't what we planned, but we're going to run with it. And like, we're going to be in there in the trenches with you guys making this happen. Right. And if you didn't have that set up before March, uh, that would have been a lot more painful to try to shift right? Shift gears or you might not have, right? Yeah. Uh, So yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. And and I, and I would assume one that, you know, takes a lot of cross-functional just coordination to get right. Like I'm I'm sure you didn't, that you didn't transition to that overnight. No, it's something that we had had to be, we were working towards it pre COVID. And so it really was very serendipitous. And, and we have to do that with our internal team who works the, uh, onsite SEO team, who works on you know the main G2 domain. They do a lot of the technical SEO. We do more of the on-page SEO. So right. we had to have a lot of meetings with them and say, you know, how can we make sure that we're writing content that is timely and relevant, but evergreen, you know, that we don't get dinged when people stop searching for this stuff. How can this still be valuable to people when they've found what they've needed? And so that was a very careful line we had to walk with them and they were incredible at making that strategy happen. Awesome. Lauren, this was super helpful. Thank you for, I mean, G2 is, is one of the rock stars in content marketing in terms of just content marketing organizations. So it's cool to, to get a little peek into some of the things that are working well and contributing to that. So thank you for coming on some good content and, and sharing and sharing so much information with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been so much fun talking to you.